Cut, and this is The K-Cut. I'm Rachel, and I write for Films Fatale. I love silent film, international movies, The Golden Age, and lost films. Who's with me? James here, content creator and stay-at-home husband. I produce and release music under the A-list Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Preferred to Say podcast. I also write for Films Fatale, and my interests include 70 cinema and no-budget cinema. I'm Andreas. I am the creator and one of the writers of Films Fatale. I love international cinema, art house films, everything in between. And uh, today is a very exciting episode. It is one of our segments known as the Cinematic Smorgasbord. Yay! Yes, it's exciting times indeed. And we've been doing this for about a year now, this segment. So that's even cooler. Uh, thank you all so much for participating in our numerous uh, cinematic excursions. So what Cinematic Smorgasbord is, is a monthly series where... We've just detailed what types of films that we like. So we basically give each other, us co-hosts, a film to watch from our own personal tastes that we feel the other might enjoy that they've never seen before. So it's our way of being able to discover brand new stuff that we've never seen before. And for um, you listeners at home as well, furthermore, in the second half of the episode, uh, once we report our findings of our individual projects, we have... Uh, a bit of a communal film where uh, all three of us have not seen a picture. And so this is our opportunity to bond over something that we've seen just for the very first time with a fresh pair of eyes. So we're going to be discussing this month's film, which was uh, the time of the gypsies in the second half of this episode. But first off, we're going to go into our individual projects. So who wants to report their findings first? I'll go. All right. So uh, what did Rachel recommend for you, James? Well, Rachel recommended the film that she's been threatening me with since the very beginning of the show, which is the George Cooker classic Holiday starring Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. That's right. So what did you think? It is definitely a very entertaining film. I never thought I would identify with a film so heavily. Identify with it. Interesting. Every millennial needs to watch this movie. Why is that? Okay, so for a little bit of background on what it's about, Gary Grant plays Johnny Case, who meets a girl he wants to marry that he met 10 days prior, which I know you said is like a really weird trope of movies back then. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty much the only socially acceptable way to be together, especially on film. So this girl, her name is Julia, and he finds out she comes from a very well off family. And so that's kind of a culture culture shock to him in general. But once he actually meets the family, I'm seeing a lot of archetypes that I've seen just in general in life as a young person. And part of the main thing is he confides in his fiance that he wants to take a holiday from working when he turns 30 so he can go on a kind of a journey of self-discovery. And along the way, upon meeting her family, he meets her sister, Linda, who is often portrayed in her family as kind of like the black sheep or the basket case, but she's very free spirited, does what she wants. And then she also has a brother named Ned, who is just this, this poor boy. He's an alcoholic. He's just so jaded. And, you know, he works for his father's bank and he's just kind of, he's kind of very jaded in the way people who just are in the system and kind of trapped. And then so there the whole thing is uh, well, one part of the point is convincing 
Linda convincing her father to let them get married on such short notice. And she does it in a very funny way. She does it while he's at church. So he can't really object because he has to stay quiet. And I just thought that was genius. Yeah. <laughs> Especially just the interaction there. I was like, oh, that's great. Like bring it up to a time where he can't like freak out. And, uh, you know, I- obviously he's skeptical, but Johnny kind of proves his case. And so what happens is, you know, he wants to throw them a party to announce the engagement. But before that, you find out Linda wants to have her own affair for the engagement. She wants to keep it small and not, you know, with the likes of that her family's usually around. And then, you know, obviously the party happens. And then Johnny makes his way to where Linda is because she's just, or she's out of sight and no one can find her. And she's, she's kind of in a room in another house, another part of the house. And then it's really fascinating because his two best friends, what are their names? Hold on. Laura and Seton? Is that my saying? Uh, no, his two best friends are Nick and Susan Potter. Oh, Nick and Susan Potter. Okay, I'm reading the wrong names. Um, yeah, they go to the party and they can't find their they can't ever wave around their house, so they find their way to the room that Linda's at and they start hanging out. Ned makes his way up there and they're just having a grand old time. And then Johnny gets up there and they're just having the time of their life, just hanging around and having fun. And then, you know, once once everybody's finally found you know, there's a big deal made about everybody being at the party. And then things kind of go sour because, you know, he still wants to do the holiday thing, but, you know, his soon-to-be father-in-law wants to offer him a job. Right, and get rich and be part of the establishment. Yeah, be a part of, you know, the higher class. And he doesn't want to do that. And the only one who seems to really understand how he feels are (laughs) her siblings who totally agree with him. Then, you know, there's an ultimatum that happens. And, uh, you know, I don't really feel bad for spoiling this because it's an old movie. You know, Johnny and Linda end up together at the end because he does decide to go his own way and she follows him. They're kindred spirits. Yeah, exactly. They're, you know, they, they were meant to be together in the sense, you know, in a very cinematic way. And the reason I say I did about with it, I, I identified with it was because. A lot of what Johnny's feeling and what he wants to do is something a lot of us have faced or are still facing. And mainly because it's like, I just turned 30 mm-hmm. and I finally feel like I'm navigating things the way that I want to go as opposed to the framework that's been presented by society. Yeah, I would completely agree. I think a lot of people identify with this sort of wanting to break out on your own and wanting to live authentically. I first saw this movie when I was 15 and it became my favorite pretty much immediately. And it's kind of been my guide in choosing things my entire life. Um, What do I want and what is expected? And I always think of Johnny and Linda and it's also kind of my model for what I want my future to be like, just being true to who you are, even if people are down on you. Yeah, it's totally understandable. It's funny because like I'm the total opposite. Like I'm not very spontaneous when it comes to lifestyle choices because I I need like I'm a very structured and controlled person. But yeah, just seeing these two, I'm just like, you know, we face that every day and just seeing the character of Ned. Like I've known people and know people who are just kind of like kind of stuck and they just kind of like lose their spirit and, you know, they just kind of deal with whatever's going on and cope however they cope. Also, like. Obviously, Cary Grant, you know, a classic performance, you know, he's this suave guy, you know, he's the he's the guy that every guy wants to be. But Catherine Hepburn steals the show. 
Oh, she does. That rule, Holiday, was actually, she was the understudy for the actress in the stage play. Oh, wow. And she used a scene from Holiday to audition for her first ever movie in Hollywood. Now, she claimed she was awful when she did understudy in the stage play, but apparently she got better. Her performance here was just electric. And just the chemistry between the cast in general. Oh, yeah. End up with somebody who looks at you the way Johnny and Linda look at each other. Yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed it. I definitely recommend it. You know, and I was actually I said this before when it when we first assigned each other, but I've been actually waiting for you to assign this. So I avoided watching it on my own. So that way it could be a moment on the pod. Well, I'm glad. Uh, Andres, do you have anything to say about holiday? Uh, yes, I uh, I caved into Rachel's recommendations a little sooner uh, back in 2020 when I was doing all of my research for my uh, best films of all time lists. And yeah, it absolutely earned its way onto my 30s list. I feel like, especially during an era of screwball films, um, this dichotomy of, of class systems and, you know, the, the connection between it's something that's done so often in the genre in 30 cinema in general, I feel like because of the great depression, maybe that was just a hot topic, but I feel like here it, it's just done so naturally. And, uh, again, like the, I, I, I don't have too much more to add that that hasn't been said already, but the chemistry is fantastic. You can't have two better leads for such a film. Uh, George Cooker in general is just one of the greats. I think it's a, it's a sublime film and, one of the ones that really sticks out when I think of the time period of the genre of both Grant and Hepburn's filmographies now, um, and Cooker as well. Like it's, it, it says a lot considering what you're looking at and the fact that it still stands out as a noteworthy project for all three of them. So it's, it's, a, it's a trifecta of, of goodness. Holiday is fantastic. Yeah, I couldn't recommend it more. And, and I have to both of you. Yes. Now... Well, uh, we'll spin off of James. Uh, James, you recommended something to me. And similarly, it's someone, rather as rather a film, that you hold dear to your heart. It's, uh, I believe it's your third Greg Araki film that you have recommended on the Smorgasbord so far. Oh, it is. Yeah, because I recommended Mysterious Skin to You. Mm-hmm. And then I recommended uh, Splendor. Splendor to Rachel. Yeah. I didn't even realize that it was the third film I did. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, now it's, uh, I believe this is the one that you labeled as uh, John Waters, like something that really stood out to him, correct? Yeah, this is actually from a period of a series of films, like this and the few films before that he had made is something that John Waters had high remarks to say about. Oh, yeah. So um, the film that we're talking about is uh, the 1997 film Nowhere by, uh, of course, Greg Araki. And it is the third film in what's known as a teenage apocalypse. All three films starring James Duvall. All three films, like of course, by Greg Araki. And this film, I wasn't sure what I was going to be in for because I know critically it's been kind of panned, and I feel like it's got like a big cult status. And you know, so are a lot of John Waters films. Like uh, Pink Flamingos is the one that sticks out the most, so I've got to bring that one up. Or something like Flying Lotus's film that he made, I believe it's called Cuso, where it's got like the same type of reputation. Uh, Pink Flamingos, I like Cuso not so much. So you never really know where you're going to be when it comes to this uh, counterculture, obviously very provocative, eclectic type of underground filmmaking. And yeah, Nowhere is such an interesting experience because it's kind of weird. It reminds me a little bit of like a, like a gummo or something like that, where it takes place over like a very short while. I think it's applied. It's like over a day and 
it's clearly impossible that it takes place over a day, but it does. And this obviously not, it's like a different universe, almost like a parallel universe where uh, the laws of physics and reality don't apply. And you're kind of in this uh, surreal days of sorts. Uh, so everybody's kind of got nicknames. All the teenagers have nicknames and all the adults, um, from what I remember, are played by like sitcom legends. Like I'm talking about like uh, John Ritter for, for God's sakes and Christopher Knight. You know, like one of the Brady Bunch kids, they're all like the adults here. So there's there's clearly this commentary on what Greg Rocky was raised on and how they're influential to the generations afterwards, which I think is a, a very interesting touch. Otherwise, you've got a lot of young faces, especially some before they took off. And I'm talking like Rose McGowan, Shannon Doherty as well to, you know, bring that around Mina Savari before American Beauty and even somebody like Christina Applegate who was beyond established at this point I mean Married with Children was like a decade prior yet she has a very prominent role here um and yeah that's the thing like I'm not sure with the cast and the music because I know the music is the big reason why the film hasn't been released on DVD because they can't get the rights but um, for as low budget as it is, they managed to wangle a lot of big names and tracks and sets and everything. Kind of. Kind of the sets. But, like, the names especially are huge. Not only that, but the movie looks really good. Like, it is so heavily stylized. It's almost like a music video from 1994 or something. And yet, it can turn so grotesque in the space of a second. It it was really interesting how they straddled that. Yeah, it's it's funny because... What I like about Gregoraki is as boundary pushing as he is, he he has a sense of style, but he also knows how to restrain when necessary. Mm-hmm. Because as outlandish as a lot of this film is, there is some moments where I'm like, this could have been pushed further. Like, uh, I remember, Andreas, you were saying something about uh, asking about, you know, in regards to nudity and sex, because you were having somebody come do some work at the apartment. <laughs> yeah, we had some people fixing the heater. <laughs> and then and then I, I quick skimmed it and I realized it's like it's a lot of it is, you know, especially in Gregor's nudity is very tasteful. He doesn't really reveal much. And it's also funny because I remember hearing him discuss the film and he said when he originally started, he he wanted to attempt to make like a PG-13 film. And it just didn't work because it was just a little bit too out there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I had. I, I like this film mainly because of just all that it accomplishes in a short amount of time. Cause it's 73 minutes, not including the credits. So there's a lot going on, but it's just like all these different influences and styles and just, you know, the nicknames he picks and the ways they talk and yeah. And also just like, like you said, the people he landed, but also a, a lot of people don't know this. Like he was actually the first person to give Rose McGowan a lead role. And he also discovered James Duvall. Mm-hmm. So that's why they have this working relationship. And even the smallest characters get their moments to be characters. They have time to shine. Like, I cannot believe how much he manages with all this enormous cast. And as you said, a short runtime. Oh, yeah. And they all have their place. Mm-hmm. Like, even just the even just the quick ones. Like, who was it? There was one quick one that I was always amazed because I was just like, it's only for a few seconds. Like the cameo? Yeah, there's like a few cameos where I'm just like, that person could have been Denise Richards. Oh, yeah, she's like barely. She's in literally it. in for 30 seconds. Yeah, you blink and you miss her. Well, there's a lot of that in the movie. <laughs> I also like he um he does a lot of like a lot of surreal elements. Like the end of the world is kind of a concept he has recurring in his themes. Mm-hmm. 
so that kind of plays into it and just like the the kind of avant-garde like sci-fi aspect that's kind of a subplot in it he's literally imitating kafka in at least one scene oh yeah like the 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 ending is uh was this metamorphosis yeah absolutely which uh, apparently I'm reading uh, was voiced by Greg Rocky himself. So, I mean, there you go. Also, I think I think it's not only just the unique thing where people have nicknames, but I think it's the choice in nicknames. Like those um, twins, I think their motto is Surf and Ski. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. and then you have Egg. Yeah, Egg, or the main character's name is Dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're not typical nicknames that you would hear. So, again, you're like brought out of the film. But I think it's one of those instances where you're continuously meant to be brought out of the film. Um, and it's not necessarily a qualm like a lot of people might imagine it to be. Um, it's so tough to like critically or subjectively talk about something like this because, again, it reminds me of Pink Flamingos where on one hand it's insanely effective, but on the other hand... Uh, calling it good or calling it a must-see or a masterpiece, it feels so right, but it also doesn't, if that makes sense. And I feel like Nowhere is kind of like that, where something like Kuso by Flying Lotus, which I don't like, I can easily say I don't like it. Whereas Nowhere, I it's it's a weird territory. And that's, that's entirely the purpose. It's like you give it a zero and a five at the same time. Kind of. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's 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 as it's as effective as it is alienating, and that's exactly what the film's purpose is. So, like in the same way that playing Pink Flamingos is supposed to make you feel every which way, it succeeds. It succeeds greatly. Will I put it on again anytime soon? I don't know, but I know for sure I'm not going to be able to shake off what I had witnessed. So, I mean, it's very effective. Let's just say that. Also, can we appreciate how '90s this movie is? Yes, you said that uh, this was more 90s than Splendor, and I didn't believe you, but you were right. <laughs> the fact that it had like the the, the like the uh, the watermelon greens, like the like the watermelon candy greens, and like the uh, like the, the the brightest fuchsia pinks, and oh my god, it was on that front. Please give me more. Like I, I love that nostalgia factor about it. It put me in mind of Promising Young Woman. I wonder if Emerald Fennell has ever seen Greg Haraki. You never know. Maybe. I also really like seeing James Duvall in things just because it's like he's such he, he has a very interesting presence on screen. I like to call him the the Keanu Reeves of Bruce Campbell's. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, he him and Keanu are kind of written in the same font physically, but also like his character isn't unlike his Keanu's character and like Bill and Ted, but also he sticks to low profile stuff. Like he's done bigger stuff. Like I think after this or before this, he was in an independence day. Yeah. Yeah, he was. But other than that, he does a lot of low profile stuff and he's a lot like um, Danny Trejo. He's literally in like four or five different small projects a year. Wow. So he works consistently still. And wow, obviously he was, he was also Frank the rabbit and Donnie Darko, which is one of his most like, notable performances yeah that's where i knew him from i remember when i recognized him i was like where do i know this guy oh it's frank (laughs) i swear but yeah so yeah uh, another wild ride that i've made a suggestion of for and you're in charge of the collective one this month so we'll see what happens oh yeah (laughs) oh boy i uh i anticipate what's gonna happen but uh let's let's tone things down a little bit with uh something a little bit more uh like down to earth and uh pretty much ambient which is the complete antithesis of uh, nowhere so what what did i plague you with uh rachel this month 
I would say ambient is a good word for this movie, and that is The Red Turtle, which was an animated film. It came out about five years ago. Um, it was from Studio Ghibli, but it was directed by Dutch director Mikael Dudok de Witt. And, um, yeah, it's weird because this movie is very hard to find, and I think it is very, very underseen. But it is worth seeing, my goodness. It is... Okay, so it does not have as nearly as intricate a plot as the last two movies. It's basically guy washes up on beach, guy meets giant turtle, and it goes from there. Um, I will not spoil the rest, but it's beautiful. It is so beautifully designed. Every pixel and every frame is just perfect. It is lush. It is rich. Um, it made me think of a children's book. I thought this could easily be turned into a very detailed, gorgeous children's book because every page of Every page is just, or frame is absolutely detailed. It brings to mind textures. It can have a rampaging storm or utter peace. It brings forth moods, all without a single line of dialogue. And it's just an incredible sensory experience. Yeah, I. Uh, it's no secret that I absolutely adore this film. And I will, um, I will sing its praise until the day I die. Like, this is... Um, like some people just have that thing. Like uh, Robert Criscow has like the New York Dolls debut album that he will sing its praises until he dies. I'm the same way with this. Like I, um, I remember the first time I watched this, it's because I do every single uh, nomination of the Academy Awards. And this was up for uh, best animated feature. Yeah, it lost to Zootopia, which I mean was pretty good, but come on. Zootopia is a good film, but no, I mean, uh, <laughs> I'll never forget that I um, I watched this with my with my girlfriend and I uh, I basically like just asked her I was like I, I need to like hold you like right now because like I just was not prepared for like how emotional I got and while I claim that this is one of my favorite films of all time to this day I have not watched it in full again because I find it virtually impossible I um, I watch it in chunks so like I'll do like the opening bit. I'll do the ending. I've watched the ending a trillion times. I um, I just find it too emotional. I find it so overwhelming with how gorgeous and heartbreaking it is, uh, especially on a figurative sense. To me, I see when I watch this, this existential battle that I have where life is just kind of going by too quickly. And at the same time, it's a beautiful thing being able to speed up the process of seeing everyone you love age and live these lifetimes within your seconds of life and i i just think it's 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 i don't know what what more to say it's just it's just too much it's 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 beyond words this movie for me and yet it's so incredibly simple it's got a very quiet plot um and there's there's not a lot to it really but yet there is so much to it I'm very curious as to why it is so difficult to find and so underseen now, because it was Academy Award nominated, it played at Cannes, it was very well regarded, I just don't get it. And that's why I feel like I have this quest where I need to discuss it, because I, I refuse for this to be swept under the rug. I'm hoping that this is like, it's such a beautiful day, mm -hmm. where by Don Hertzfeld, where that kind of disappeared, but now I, I believe, especially because it was picked up by Netflix, it's gone now, but it was at one point. Uh, so many people are aware of it now and it's like, we need it to, to come back. We need this to be widely seen. I've, I'm hoping the same thing for the Red Turtle. And uh, another thing, I've got to give a shout out to 
the score, which I think is yes. one of the the great triumphs of the film. The uh, the score is just so damn beautiful that I don't think it should be a crazy thing to consider it in the discussion of the, some of the greatest scores I've ever heard. James, did you watch it? I did watch it. I thought it was really good. You know, it was almost like watching, it's like watching a dream. And I also, you know, now that you, when you said children's book, it had that kind of vibe, you know, I I thought the colors were vibrant and radiant. The message was powerful. Just the pacing of the story and what happens, but you know, I kind of got like, I was just thinking about this just a little bit ago. This would be a fun, it's like kind of like a movie that if you took the frames and compiled them a book, it would make a great color by numbers book with like Mm. a pencil set. If it was made into a book, I would give it to every child in my family. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like like honestly, a children's book version of this story would be great. But I, I always find it fascinating when modern films decide to go the no dialogue route. Because the visual has to be on point to pull it off. And just here, just every frame, especially when the flood happens. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's uh, overwhelming. I could tell you why there's no dialogue. So, um, Dudok DeVitt uh, is actually an, an Academy Award winner. So, the fact that he didn't win for this is a travesty. But he at least won for Best Animated Short Film for Father and Daughter, which came out 16 years prior. And Studio Ghibli, I think it was Miyazaki himself actually reached out to him and said, I love the short so much, which is also dialogue free. It's like a, it's like a 10 minute short. I don't recall. Can you make something like this, but a feature? And it was like this big project for Dr. Vit to try and make this work. And that's why it's effectively a short at over an hour length. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's 80 minutes, but done so well. And they, it, it's not one of those ones where you're like, they should have made this into a short. It would have worked better. No, it, it succeeds at being a feature. Dialogue would have ruined it, I think. Yeah. I, I feel like uh, this is one where you needed to experience all of the things within it for it to be as impactful as it is. It also makes it universal. Yeah. Because there's no language barrier. Yeah. It's kind of like when George Miller made Mad Max Fury Road. The reason there's minimal dialogue is so that anybody from anywhere could understand what's going on without having to hear anybody explain anything. I used to show Charlie Chaplin in ESL classes for just that reason. Exactly. I I firmly agree with uh, the Red Turtle. It's this tabula rasa where we've not been swept up on an island. And if you have, I apologize. But most of us here, like all three of us have not had that experience. But we've had hardships of our own where effectively life restarts after we've crossed this threshold. And... We're not anticipating what's coming our way or what it looks like. And that's another reason why I think it's so special that it's uh, all of this takes place in the form of of turtles. There's the titular red turtle and there's other uh, sea turtles that, that get involved. Whether you treat them in, you know, in each moment as a vice or a burden or as a sign of your youth and, uh, you know, love gestating and, you know, caring for life, it's this impressionable symbol as opposed to, you know, somebody who might have an addiction issue or somebody who wants to move. These are things that we can like, Oh, I've never had an addiction issue or I've never had to move. Suddenly it disconnects, but this is so symbolic that I feel like um, it's abstract enough that it's not overly abstract. So you can't make sense of it, but it's abstract enough that you can place your entire lifetime into this film 
even though you have like zero connection with it in a literal sense. That's the red turtle. So those were all of our individual assignments. Now I'm equally as eager to discuss this upcoming film and I'm not sure how uh, it's that well with everybody else. So the communal collective pick uh, was actually up to me this, this month. And for a while, I've had people writing to Films Fatale asking why I haven't reviewed or covered the works of uh, Amir Kusturika, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And this is somebody who I've been meaning to check out because he is a, a two-time Palme d'Or winner. And for this particular film, he won Best Director at Cannes. So he's obviously a big deal. And he's heavily revered. I've seen so many actors and filmmakers bringing up this particular film. We watched Time of the Gypsies, which is this crazy, surreal, crime, family, hyperdrama comedy of sorts. Like it's, it doesn't really have an identity. It's kind of just everything. Anyway, Time of the Gypsies, what did we think? It's the kind of movie where it does not... It is not a product of the world. It is its own world. And you must adjust to it, not the other way. Like, it, it's not from, from our own landscape. It, you have to be part of that movie's world, and it completely takes you over. And by the end of the movie, you are just a little bit off kilter. Yeah, and I feel like so many films try to, try to achieve this, Rachel. Mm-hmm. But I feel like so many of them don't develop its lore enough or they develop it too much so it's suffocating you i feel like this is like the right amount where there's a little bit of like telepathy happening and um you know the ability to move objects with your mind or to do other stuff um which is you know that's what the the lead character um this this young uh this young adolescent who's experiencing life you know in you know in a rural part of um where are they located? Did they specify where they're located? Um, it was filmed all over what was then Yugoslavia, so up to anybody, I guess. I, I guess it's a, it's interpretational, but yeah, like it does take place in Yugoslavia at first because he, he traverses around. So you get a little bit of that, and it's not like full-blown Matilda where it's like all of these psychic powers all over the place, but it's like tastefully done where you don't forget that there's this type of capability where his um, his grandmother can heal people and, and he could move stuff. But it's not overdone either. It's being shoved down your throats. So it's like the right balance, and I feel like that's what makes this film stick out to me a lot and why somebody would revere uh, Costa Rica so much as, as a filmmaker is that he definitely knows the right amount of ingredients when it comes to his imagery, his symbolism, his danger and taboo stuff. There's a lot of that here, his emotions, everything was just the right amount. Yes, I would absolutely agree. Um, When, James was talking about restraint earlier. It made me think of this because he has absolutely perfect restraint. This film is a good example of something I usually like to talk about when it comes to film, especially in the landscape of like a lot of the reboots and remakes is this is a good example of it's never necessary to reinvent the wheel. And he doesn't try to do that. This movie is kind of takes on a classic trope of, you know, the coming of age story where a young boy gets involved in a world he probably shouldn't mm-hmm. find success kind of starts to fall. And then he realizes his place. But there, like you said, it's like, it has all these different elements, like the, you know, the magic and, you know, fantasy element. 
it just, just the setting in general, because it's not, it, it's very atypical for these kind of stories because it's like, you know, being from another country is often a world in and of itself. So this one kind of contained it even further with all these other elements. But yeah, I think it also goes to show the potential of young actors. Yes, I've, absolutely. A lot of the time when people pick young actors, they're often, they usually hit the mark and I don't know how it is. Maybe it's just they're they're young enough to where it's like there isn't that insecurity or anxiety of having to do the best. Which can be applied to pretty much anybody, not just people um, with magical powers living in Yugoslavia in the 80s. This reminded me so much of this uh, Canadian, this uh, Quebecois film, uh, uh, Leolo. But I, I feel like that this was able to achieve a lot of the similar things, but even better. And at times, this reminded me so much almost of like Once Upon a Time in America by Sergio Leone, where it's like this uh, this young kid, effectively, he's a teenager, but he's a kid, let's be honest, who kind of feels forced to be wrapped up in this life of the criminal underworld and basically becomes the very thing that he feared being out on the streets of his town. Now he's like the this this overlord, you know, everybody uh, resorts to with their money and, you know, he's got this power over people. It's that, but it's also so much more, again, with the, uh, the fantasy elements, with Costa Rica's trying to say about you know, growing up in Yugoslavia or even like different parts of Europe because, mm-hmm. you know, they, they wind up in Rome at one point. It's, it just is so much to take in. And I feel like the imagery, the, uh, the connectivity with the film itself, how interesting the story was the, despite the fact that it was an odd one. I personally absolutely adored this film myself. Yeah. So did I. Um, and I think it's not like your average well-regarded film. It's definitely something that you need to be in the right frame of mind for. And it's something that will change how you look at movies. I think one of the things I appreciated was the main character's rise to power was actually authentic. His powers don't come into play in that regard. And I find that interesting because in a lot of these kinds of stories, you have the main character trying to develop these powers, but he doesn't. He doesn't quite understand them, and it isn't until the end where he kind of like realizes his place with his powers. And that the ending sequence is really like I wasn't expecting it to go that way. Like this, this movie ebbed and flowed really well, but there are just moments where I was just like, "This is epic." Mm-hmm. It's like gritty. It's like so like so intense and riveting. Like for uh, a film that's like pseudo fantasy, but to be this riveting. I've got to say, um, once I'm done all my TV research and those uh, best TV lists of all time are up on Films Fatale, and I'm finally getting around to doing some slight alterations to my other previous lists, I've got to slap this on my best films of the 80s lists. I, I, I adore it. I think, it's, I think it's fantastic. I completely get the hype, and I want to check out more by this guy, and I'm, I'm like ecstatic to do so. I want to watch his Palm d'Or winners. Yes, absolutely. Two-time winner? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's exactly where I'm going next after that. But before I check out more stuff from this fine Serbian gentleman, uh, which thank you to everybody for bugging me to watch this. You were all right. You were all right. And in order to bug us again with your fantastic recommendations, uh, Rachel, where can our listeners find us? So we are uh, listed as The K-Cut on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and I pretty much live on the internet, so come talk to us anytime. Yes, recommend some good stuff. Now, speaking of recommendations, it's not a smorgasbord 
episode until we grace each other with our our upcoming films that we have to do for next month. So we're going to end off with our collective pick chosen by James. But before we do that, we're going to recommend stuff to each other. So because Rachel recommended something to James and James to myself and myself to to Rachel, we're going to go the opposite direction, counterclockwise. So who wants to go first and find out what they're going to watch for the month of March? Uh, I'll go first. Okay. All right. So, Andreas, have you ever seen uh, Au Revoir Les Enfants or Goodbye Children by Louis Malle? It's funny you should say that because I was just discussing the best of all time list that I that I wrote uh, over the course of 2020. And there are some films that I just did not have the time to get around to. And they were very, very, very painfully cut from the the long list of what I was able to watch. And one of the final ones I had to cut because I couldn't get around to it was Les Enfants. So that's that's absolutely one that's been on my radar, but I have not seen it. Excellent. Okay. Okay. Perfect. That is a fantastic pick. Yeah, again, that's been on my, ra- my radar for the, the longest time. I've heard how great it is. It it just didn't make the cut, but now I can't avoid it. So you never know. Maybe like Time of the Gypsies, this will make the list after the fact. You never know. So I'm excited for that. Thank you so much. You know what? I first discovered it because it was summarized as a unit in my French textbook. So clearly uh, it's well known if, if it's even getting that far into textbooks. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's it's uh, very impactful. It's uh, it's resonance on the film industry is yeah. most certainly felt. It's just one of those things. It just it just happened. Just happened that I didn't get around to it. So now I will. Uh, I want to know what I'm going to get. James, what am I going to get? Oh, sorry. Sorry. I'm completely brain farting. Um, I want to give James his project next. So, James, do you want to know what you're going to get? Give it to me. Well, I like to throw people off course or in for a loop, but uh, this one's going to be the most obvious pick that I give. Uh, more obvious than Persona. So, we've discussed this for a while. I believe on the uh, the trivia episode, I brought up the fact that I don't bring up... Uh, we don't bring up enough female filmmakers. So, I said I would correct that the very next chance that I get. And that's exactly what I'm doing. Um... James, I'm going to preempt your Oscar binge-watching season because you're going to be watching a film by this director called The Power of the Dog. But the film I'm giving you, as a bit of an appetizer I already for know that, what it is. <laughs> yep, is one of the greatest films of the 1990s. It is The Piano by Jane Campion. So yes. that is what you're awesome. getting. Yep, that is excellent. It's a long time coming. You said that that might have to be a smorgasbord recommendation for me. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's why it's an obvious one. But now, now it's on Criterion. You can buy it. You can you can watch this amazing film. So there you go. All right. I guess so. All that's left is for me to give Rachel's assignment. Oh, boy. Yes. It's like Christmas. Awesome. So I think I'm going to return the favor because you recommended Holiday after so long of not, which was actually really surprising. I'm going to give you a film that we discussed that you said you haven't seen. That is from our very first episode. And I'm going to assign you Darren Aronofsky's pie. All right. That that's coming full circle. Perfect. Yeah. It's definitely one of my, I rewatched it recently and it used to be my favorite film before upstream color. And I think it might take the top spot again. Okay. Cause I, I just, this is one of my alt. It's one of my favorite debuts. One of my favorite, no budget films. The lead actor, Sean Gallet, his performance is one of the best performances, period, in history. And it is such a unique film. And watching it, you'll understand why he found success later on. I'm really excited to see it. And uh, 
I'll have to check it out is finally coming true. Yeah, I also, when I watched it, it was on YouTube free with ads. It's funny because Pi kind of inspired the smorgasbord because I think it got started when we started saying to each other, well, we've got to start recommend, we've got to start actually watching the films we recommend to each other. And Pi was what was in the back of my mind when we were talking about this. Oh, yeah. It's funny that you say that Pi brought things full circle because once you watch Pi, you'll you'll start to get into the whole uh, numeric conspiracy thing. So full circle. Uh, oh, it's a little uh, more yeah. than that. <laughs> but um, a quick shout out because you brought up uh, the Pi's performance. Another reason why I'm recommending the piano. Um, Holly Hunter is one of the top 10 greatest performances of all time in the piano. So just had to toss that in there just for extra spice. But I feel like I feel like this might be the strongest three picks that we've we've chosen so far. What do you guys think? I think it's up there. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I feel like this is going to be a great one. Now, to wrap everything up, uh, Sir James, please be kind with your your collective pick. What are we watching? All right. Well, you know, I always got to keep it interesting. Uh Uh Uh-oh. Okay. That never ends well. I'm going with a film that actually inspired Pi, and that is Tokyo Fist by Shinya Tsukamoto. If if you're familiar with Shinya Tsukamoto, you know that he caused quite a stir with his debut feature, Tetsuo the Iron Man. Ooh, okay. I thought I recognized the name. Okay, if this is the guy that did if that, did that, I'm so stoked. I'm in. This is awesome. Yeah, it's definitely. I've seen. I've only seen two of Sukamoto's films. One is Tetsuo the Iron Man, and also the third movie in the Tetsuo trilogy because there's three of them. Uh, Tetsuo the Bullet Man. So. This is one of the ones, I think it was his like second one after Tetsuo. But yeah, he, he has a very interesting style. He's definitely very unique. So, yeah. Yeah, I love Tetsuo the Iron Man. So the fact that I've like actually tasted something from, um, from Tsukamoto's uh, filmography, uh, it, it makes me feel good about Tokyo Fist coming up. All right, now we just got to wait another month before we can discuss them all. That's right. AKA the two of you are going to watch them tomorrow. <laughs> I have to wait because I'm like busy watching everything else under the sun and do it the night before. So that that's why it comes full circle again. Because uh, y'all get on it very early. I leave it to the last second. So <laughs> thank you so much for listening to another episode of The K-Cut and uh, specifically the cinematic smorgasbord we've got some work to do and so do you listeners at home so that was the k-cut we're now going into the all-cut